a dream that one day we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. The Historian's Magazine Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Historian's Magazine Podcast, the podcast where we bring history to you in an accessible way from some of the world's most exciting historians. The Historian's Magazine Podcast is produced and presented by Past and Present Media, the home of accessible history. So in today's episode of the Historian's Magazine Podcast, we are speaking to Rachel Harris-Gardner all about the history of women in motorsport. But before we jump into today's episode, I'd like to read out one of our five-star reviews before we have a message from our supporters. And this one is from Conscious Dave, who says, Good show for historians. I've enjoyed the show just as much as the magazine itself. Nice to get a deeper inside view of the writers behind the articles. Most things have been fairly European-focused so far, but I think they're branching out into other areas as well. They have a lot of potential to help out historians and the study of history more generally. You can tell they are passionate about it. Well, thank you very much for that five-star review, Dave, and I can assure you we are going to have more non-European-focused history in the future. So if you would like to feature in the Historians Magazine podcast, leave a five-star review below, and we will make sure it's read in one of the upcoming episodes in this series. Now, here at the Historians Magazine, we love hearing and learning about history that isn't often touched upon in history textbooks or in traditional history media. And one place that we love to go and learn about this kind of history is the Past podcast with Veronica Fortune. Now, Past is the podcast about those who would never rule. So if you've ever been curious about why women couldn't inherit the throne of France or how the Hundred Years' War started, this is the show for you. Now, Veronica covers the almost kings and queens of history and the reasons why they would never rule, which is an amazing idea, and I really think you're going to enjoy it. So that is The Past Podcast, P-A-S-S-E-D, The Past Podcast. Now, I know you're fascinated by history because you are listening to the Historian's Magazine podcast. But are you interested in the history of art and culture? Do you want to learn more about works of art, famous artists, or exciting archaeological discoveries? If you do, do you want to learn about it through free quality art history content? If that is something that appeals to you, look no further than Accessible Art History, the podcast. This is a weekly podcast where it explores all of these topics and so much more in such an accessible and entertaining way. The goal of this podcast, an accessible art history, is to provide history, knowledge, content, and fun whilst learning. Now, you can listen to this podcast and download it through any major podcast player, be that Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you listen to your podcast on. So that is Accessible Art History, the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Historian's Magazine podcast. Today we are joined by author, historian and writer of one of the amazing articles within the upcoming motorsport edition of the Historian's Magazine, Rachel Harris-Gardner. How are you doing, Rachel? Um, I'm well. I'm uh, enjoying the sunshine and getting ready for actually a bit of uh, reporting this weekend at Snetterton. 
that sounds like a great weekend lined up as well and in the sun yes. I mean there's nothing there's nothing better really is there no not really we're here to talk about your article today and, and your article focuses on the history of women in motorsport now the f- one question I always like to ask every guest that we get on the podcast is what is what inspired you to focus on this particular topic obviously I've written a whole book about the subject which I've believe you're doing a review of speed queens so it's it's been an interest for a long time but i'm guessing you want to know sort of what was the inspiration for that as well um it's a bit of a funny story um i've always been into motorsport and my dad's encouraged me and mainly you know just watching on the telly and going to the track occasionally and i remember him telling me years and years ago that there was a woman who raced in formula one because I, i'd assume that they weren't allowed this is probably back in the 80s we had this conversation. Uh, Dad couldn't remember who she was. We didn't have the internet then, so we couldn't just look at her and said, oh, her name was Davinia Somebody. Um, and that stayed in my head. And then fast forward a little way to 2001-ish, when I was at university, and things like this often happened to me when I was supposed to be doing something else. I was supposed to be studying a completely different subject and just remembered this Divinia someone when I was in a computer room. I mean, remember computer rooms at universities. <laughs> it sort of shows how old I am. And I thought, right, I've, I can actually find out who she is. And I found out she was Davina Galitza and she wasn't even the only one. And then it all went from there. <laughs> and then I started a blog in about 2004 which has gone through a couple of sort of different hosts and slightly different formats. And that's the Speed Queens blog as it's still being updated today. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great story there. And, you know, building upon that relationship with you and your dad and, and talking about, you know, thinking about how you didn't think women were allowed to drive in F1. Certainly, you know, in the period that I've been watching and been really super interested in Formula One, you know, when I was younger, I, I certainly had that same belief because you just didn't see anyone uh or any women you know around the paddock and thankfully it's got a lot better so the first official motor race was in in france in 1894 now can you can you tell us about this race and you know were were women allowed to be involved in this race or were they involved in this race i I don't know whether they weren't allowed or whether they just didn't because obviously it was a very new thing and not many people not many people at all had access to cars let alone powerful ones and um, and there weren't very many entrants at all and um, i don't think there was any official ban on women but none actually entered well, that's that's probably accurate when when did races start to be organized for women then that was that was in France again. Um, they're sort of a bit of a trailblazing nation for motorsport generally. Um, it was in 1897, so three years after the first race, and it actually took place on a, a, a um, permanent course. But it was it wasn't a, a you know a circuit. It was actually a horse racing track, and um, a newspaper had was had been organising a sort of celebrity sports day for quite a few years usually involving theatre people racing bicycles and a lot of it was based around cycling but there were also roller skating races and sort of sideshow acts it was it it was very much a celebrity event it's called the Course des Artistes and one year there was actually a a, a race for painters as well on bicycles Uh, so in 1897 they decided um, to cash in on 
sort of women becoming a bit more emancipated and organise a race on motorised tricycles for actresses and theatre ladies. It it sounds like a really interesting event where, you know, Celebrity Sports Day, I, I don't know very many people who wouldn't watch that nowadays. So, <laughs> you know, to have have the popularity of that back in the, the late 1800s sounds you know, really quite fascinating and interesting. And I want to pick up on a point that you, you mentioned about France being kind of a trailblazing nation uh, in the early days of motorsport. Now, obviously, Britain, we've always seen Britain as being, it is physically separated from the continent and being slightly different from the continent. So how did continental races differ from those going on or about to happen in, in Britain? I think part of the the uh, reason that things are different, there's more space in France. They had great long roads that you could do city to city road races on and all the the big famous ones that we've we've got results for went between usually Paris and and another city sometimes if it were depending on the distance it might be there and back or it might be just a, a great long road race and then there were inter- intercontinental ones as well to Vienna there's a famous one to Madrid that only got as far as Bordeaux because too many people died and it was all based around road racing although there, there were also trials which was one car at a time on a a short track which is similar to how motorsport develops in the UK though we because of our our laws about motoring generally and speed limits and things it's apart from the Isle of Man it's virtually never been legal to have road racing in the UK we organized um uh, speed trials in places like Brighton that started in 1905 that's an event that's still going now and um, quite often they were on uh, beachfronts, so there was social events with a few celebrities and held in the summer. Uh, Blackpool had its own speed trial. Southport, Bexhill in Kent, that was one of the earliest, that's 1902. So that's more how circuit racing got going in the UK than the, the, the long road races, which they did have in Ireland, but not really as much. It's It's a really fascinating insight into the differences between the continent and, and the British people then really because you know even today though I think these attitudes are kind of still prevalent um you know from local governments and so on because you know where I live there's still signs that say street racing is prohibited mm-hmm. um but you know, you know there's still some trials going off on the continent so definitely you know those attitudes are still prevalent today now one one female British racer you mentioned in your article is Dorothy Levitt. She is definitely a really important uh, woman in the the history of female speed queens. So who was she and how successful was she as a racer? As a racer, um, I think her biggest achievement was she won the Daily Mail Challenge Trophy outright against male drivers in the Brighton Speed Trials in 1905. Um, She was the Beachfront Speed Trials that I mentioned a minute ago. She did. She was involved in a lot of those. She set a record at Southport. Um, I think it was Blackpool in 1906. She still managed to set a speed record, although part of her car's bonnet had come flying up and nearly taken her head off. Um, she was very brave. She was actually she was an incredibly good driver. Um, but she had the support and the publicity machine of the Napier Motor Company and their. Uh, Selwyn, uh, Francis Selwyn Edge, who 
was a racing driver himself, had been a cyclist, and he was also, for his day, an absolute PR and marketing wizard. And we don't know exactly how they got involved. She worked in the offices at Napier to begin with, but he saw something in her and she was chosen. She wasn't promotional mascot. That's very patronising and that's not accurate. But she was the public face or one of the public faces of, of Napier Motorcars. And um, she was actually given really good machinery and lots of support. And she, she was successful and the, the papers loved her. In terms of who she actually was as a person, that's a much more interesting question because um, she was, let's put it, she didn't, wasn't always on speaking terms with the truth in terms of who she was and, you know, where she'd come from. Um, she was actually a, a, a Jewish woman in her early 20s from East London called uh, Elizabeth Dorothy Levi. Um, her father was the one that, that changed the family's name. But then she got... She goes on to invent this entire backstory for herself that she grew up in the West Country, which, as far as I know, she never even visited. That she was, she sort of hinted that she was from landed gentry, that she'd escaped an arranged marriage, that that she rode to hounds, that she was an expert fisherwoman, that she was an expert shot. Um, it was it was all rubbish, but the papers lapped it up and they loved her even more. It's so fascinating that she created these stories and the media is absolutely loving it. My question for that then is, why do you think she created these different stories? Was it kind of to capitalise off media interest or for another reason? I think um, it may have been, from the beginning, a ham-fisted attempt to protect her family's privacy. Um, I don't know that, but I suspect that might have been how it started. And, and you know, sometimes you, you can't blame people for wanting to protect uh, their family's privacy, certainly with the way that the media was at that point. Um, you know, it's, the media can be incredibly uh, pervasive. So I certainly can certainly see why she she wanted to take that stance. Now, in your in your article in our upcoming motorsport edition, you also break down the success of different female racers and their participation in some of the world's biggest motor racing competitions. And and one of these competitions is Le Mans. Now, I want to break down you know, Le Mans relationship with female racers. So how many, or how have um, female racers got on throughout the history of Le Mans? Because obviously it's a gruelling race. It's a 24-hour race um, and it's an incredibly fascinating one. It's been up and down. There have been a lot more women take on endurance racing than Formula One generally. And I, I think, well, you, you can't just decide to take on Formula One, obviously. You, you have to earn your place there. But still now, there are more successful women in the upper levels of endurance racing. Um, and Le Mans was part of that. I've, I think we've, this, this year, next week, we've got one all-female team and at least two other teams with female drivers and one uh, Richard Mille team with Lilou Wadu is expected to do very well. Uh, right at the start, of the, when it's the 100th anniversary of Le Mans this year, um, the first few races didn't feature any women at all um i don't i don't know why um there were definitely women racing in, in france and in the uk at that time but they, they just sort of slipped through the net until 1930 which is when you start getting women um and they were french women to begin with uh marguerite Marais and uh, odette Sico, who 
raced um, in 1930. Uh, they both uh, raced with other people in um, subsequent events, and uh, Odette Seiko still has the record for the highest female finish of uh, fourth. Um, the 1930s were a really good decade. You get to 1935, and there are actually 10 female drivers in the race. Um, six of them came from a, a British MG team that was three cars with two drivers in each, but the others were were French. Um, so riding high then. The Second World War, obviously everything stopped for quite a while. Um, it was a barrier to participation for a lot of people, and uh, female the female participation does tail off. And then in the 1950s, it does stop. The usual reason given for that is that uh, in 1956, there'd been a really nasty accident at Ram involving um, a woman called Annie Bousquet, who went through the windscreen of her Porsche and sort of bled to death on the bonnet. It was really quite awful. And the usual explanation given is that the uh, Automobile Club de l'Ouest, which organises Le Mans, still does to this day, uh, didn't want the adverse publicity that Annie Bousquet had got and didn't accept entries from female drivers. We know that they didn't accept entries till about 1971, but it is important to know it was never really confirmed why that was. But in, in the 70s, um, there's another boom. Um, we've got a woman called uh, Marie-Claude Beaumont, who had been um, very successful in rallies who uh, she's, I can't remember off the top of my head how many times she entered the race, but it was a lot, um, usually in the Corvette with Henri Gradet. We start to get all female teams again, and multiple female teams, and uh, women winning their class. Yeah, 80s and 90s, there was there was still a, a fair few, um, usually in the sort of GT classes, so not challenging for overall wins. And I, d I don't know why the 70s and the 30s were such a, a boom time. It may have just been because it was a boom time for motorsport in general. Um, I think it might be that sort of increasing professionalisation has pushed women out a bit, but it does seem to be on the up again. Like I said, we've, gotten, we've had an all-female team at Le Mans for the past three or four years now, and it, things seem to be looking up again. Yeah, from, you know, from my position as a, a big fan of motorsport, you can certainly see that women are more visible in the paddock and, and more visible in broadcast coverage of of motorsport which is a great you know great thing to see and it definitely you can definitely see that it's inspiring people to get involved does does the success of of women in Le Mans or the number of women entering Le Mans does it translate across to Formula One because you know here in Europe we kind of see Le Mans and endurance racing and, and Formula One is the two pinnacles of of motorsport. No, it doesn't. Um, but if you look at the men who have won Le Mans, especially for in, in this, you know, looking back, um, they're quite often not the most successful Formula One drivers. And some of them, like Tom Christensen, who is Mr. Le Mans, he's won it nine times. He never raced in Formula One at all. So maybe the women aren't. As, as much of an anomaly as, as they look like they are. Uh, Lella Lombardi, who did race in Formula One, she was the only woman to, walk, to score points in a race in this 75 Spanish Grand Prix. 
but she only got half a point because it was stopped early due to an accident involving Rolf Stommelen's car and some spectators. I mean, she she competed in sports cars um, before and after her Formula One career. I'd say she was probably the better sports car racer, but she was definitely Formula One material. She was racing a sort of private march that didn't always work very well. But I'd say that that well, she was one crossover. But on the other hand, there's been so few women who've raced in Formula One. It's not really a big enough group to generalise from. And they've there's definitely been women who've achieved success in in other fields um like michelle mouton who um nearly won the world rally championship in 1982 about five years earlier she she won her class at le mans in an all-female team so it, it, it's it's not completely isolated but it's it's relationship with formula one for everybody is a little bit complex yeah and you know, I like I like some of those points you're saying that it's it's not just a translation that has not worked quite well for women. It's it's a translation that's not worked well for men as well. You know, these these series aren't they don't appear to be generating mutual success. You know, Kamui Kobayashi, one name off the top of my head. You know, he he was an okay Formula One racer, but he's he's turned into a really good endurance driver. Um, so it's it's interesting to draw those parallels across the two the two series. Now, you mentioned someone there who I really want to talk about a little bit more because I think she's a fascinating figure. Uh, and, you know, I, I think people want to learn more about her. And that was Michelle Mouton, uh, you know, and her, her career in rally. Could you could you really tell us about this this speed queen and her her success off the road in, in rally championships? Oh, well, how long have you got? Um, a short answer 1982, uh, she came second in the World Championship. And that year, she won three World Championship rallies outright in a, a really good year against strong opposition. You've got uh, Walter Ruhl, she was up against Hanu Mikola, some of the real legends of the sport, and uh, she sometimes beat them. Um, something else we have to remember that this was the very beginning of um, Group B. So when rallying got very loud, very larry, very, very dangerous, cars got really crazy and really fast, and she's right in there with them. I mean, women had definitely won rallies before. I mean, won quite a lot of rallies. I, can't, I, I can think of several off the top of my head, and there's, there, there are more. Um, you'd got Pat Moss in the 60s, who was actually Sterling Moss's sister, who, um, I mean, she won the Liège-Rome-Liège in, in 1960. Uh, that was, I mean, it, there was quite a big element of speed, but a lot of that was was navigation and, and endurance. But by 1982, things were moving into just out and out speed and traction and craziness. And Michelle Mouton was right there at the front of it. She was, I think, she was the first person to win a rally in a Group B car, San Remo in 1981. And she she hadn't been plucked from nowhere. Like I said, she'd she'd done a bit of circuit racing. She'd been French rally champion a few times. She'd won rallies in Spain, uh, in France, uh, driving a Fiat. Um, and she had a few goes in a Porsche. She drove lots of cars during her career. Uh, she started in 73. And uh, she's always been very self-deprecating and said, oh, they only took me on because I was a woman and it was publicity value. But she was absolutely the real deal. Um, during her career, she won four rallies, which doesn't sound that impressive. But if you look at her on sort of the all-time greats table, she's about level with Francois Delacour, who is not rallying anymore, but he's someone that most people have heard of. She was 
you know, she was good. She was, like I said, she was absolutely the real deal. And, you know, I, you know, for anyone wanting to kind of understand the the level of talent and skill you've got to have to be not just good at rallying, but to be amazing, you know, those Group B rally cars are frightening. Um, you know, you look at some of those cars and certainly the Audis that she was, dri- she was driving, they are unbe- unbelievably mental uh, when you watch the videos and they still are today. So, you know, for her to go away and be that successful in that series, it, it really is, you know, it's it's something that's truly amazing for anyone to do that. Now, a lot of the motorsport that we've been discussing has been very Eurocentric. You know, Le Mans, F1 and, and Rally, particularly Group B, Europeans tend to really enjoy watching them and taking part in them. But... The Americans have their own motorsport series that they see as the pinnacle of of motorsport. You know, does does this success in Europe? You know, is it very similar in America? Do they have more or less? Because typically, American motorsport has been relatively isolated from the world stage. That's it's actually a really interesting question because if you read about the history of IndyCar and especially about NASCAR, it has got testosterone sort of leaking out of its pores. And you will read that, and it, it was true that women weren't even allowed in NASCAR pit lanes until the 1970s because they were believed to be bad luck and a distraction, which seems rather silly. But yet, um, IndyCar has actually had a woman winning a race. Um, The first, which was Danica Patrick in 2005, wasn't actually in America, it was in Japan, but a win's a win, and she's the only one. And they beat Formula 1 to it, because obviously it still hasn't happened. Um, And there's there's been, not frequently to begin with, that women have been given it a go since 1976, when Janet Guthrie tried to qualify for the Indy 500. And a couple of years later, she she did qualify and get in and finish ninth. Um, and so we've had Lincent James, who's been Rookie of the Year, Danica. I mean, in the past 10 years, there have been times when there have been three women starting the Indy 500. You've got Pippa Mann or uh, uh, Bia Figueredo um, or Simona Di Silvestro, um, apart from, you know, sharing a track. So... <laughs> It likes to make out that it's it's really not friendly to women, but somehow women have turned that around to their advantage. Um, NASCAR, NASCAR's different in that there have been quite a few women that have tried, but not really much success. But that, obviously, it seems the most sort of, well, not alpha male-ish, because that doesn't accurately describe what it's like, but testosterone good old boy thing ever, and yet, it had women right from the beginning in 1948. It it doesn't make a great deal of sense how it's how it's worked out for women, but that's how it is. Yeah, I mean, from you know, from my perception of you know NASCAR, it's certainly a a beer drinking motorsport. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, but you know, some of the, some of these women have been so incredibly successful. I I remember a time uh, when you know during during my time of watching and and uh knowing about formula one where danica patrick was even being discussed for formula one seats due oh, to yeah. her success in in those american series 
and Sarah Fisher as well. I think she did a, a test in a McLaren. Um, it wasn't an official test. It was, you know, just doing some demo laps at the US Grand Prix. But there was there was quite a lot of hype around her to begin with as well. I mean, she, she came second in one of her first races. So it's it, it, it's great to see how these American series have really been, you know, streets ahead of of Formula One and and what they're doing and you know where they've been in the past. So I think now is a great time for us to take an ad break. Uh, before we come back with some questions from from you guys, the listeners, that we're we're going to ask Rachel for her thoughts on. So before we go for our ad break, you're going to be listening to a couple of messages from our supporters, and then it'll be back to us. If you enjoy the sound of my voice, and I really hope you do, because you are listening to the Historians Magazine podcast, I think you'll really enjoy the History of Jackson podcast. The History of Jackson podcast brings up-to-date historical research to you from historians, authors and researchers in an accessible and digestible way that strips away the academic jargon that none of us understand and focuses on the history at the root of the episode. So if that's something that appeals to you and you want to learn more about up-to-date historical research, head to the History of Jackson podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That is the History of Jackson podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Now, obviously, you love historical content because you are listening to the Historians Magazine podcast. But if you need some more historical content in your life, or if you're a history writer or budding history writer looking to start your historical content creator journey, then I have the perfect place for you. And that is thehistorycorner.org or the History Corner blog, as they're known on Instagram. This is the perfect place for creative people to find a hub for historical writing or those who love living history or photography to find ways to collaborate with the community. So that is thehistorycorner.org and the History Corner blog on Instagram. Great place for contributors and authors to start their historical content creation journey. That is thehistorycorner.org or the History Corner blog on Instagram. So thank you for coming back after our ad break. So we are going to go to your listener questions now. So Rachel, from from Lindsay, we have, what's the most interesting vehicle you've come across in your research and why? No one's ever asked me that before. And I'm, I'm, there's all sorts of cars that I've seen that aren't necessarily associated with women that were just, you look and think, what? And it somehow works. As I do tend to be attracted to things in motorsport that are slightly weird. Um, I think my favourite one at the moment, um, in the late 1920s in the UK, well, and, and later, there was a, a woman called um, Gwenda Stewart. She was also Gwenda Hawkes, and she was Gwenda Jansen in the time period in question. Um, she was she was a bit of a serial marrier. Uh, she also held the Brooklyn's women's lap record for years. Um, she set a speed record in the 1920s on a motorcycle called a, a Nera car. And I'd seen this written down lots of times, and then I looked into what it actually was, just assuming it was going to be, I don't know, some 1920s motorcycle. And it was this quite odd-looking um, scooter-like device with hub steering, um, with a, a very upright riding position. And they were actually marketed to women as being cheaper and a bit easier to drive than a car. And... Um, so she she set this uh, endurance speed record on this 
this funny looking scooter. And there were a few around at the time, and um, most of them didn't really do that well. But I just thought that was interesting because it wasn't just a woman taking a car; it was, it it was a machine that had been almost invented to to cater for the female motorist. I don't know where there are any, if if there still are any, but there are pictures of them online. They're very funny looking things. That sounds pretty cool, actually. I can't I can't imagine going particularly fast on a scooter you know for me two wheels that's probably if I'm not cycling that's probably enough for me on two wheels so our second question here is from Katie if you could travel back in time to any historical event or era what would it be oh easy I'd go back to the 1930s uh, it's a decade that I find quite interesting generally or just a bit between between the two world wars but 1930s and I'd go to Brooklands and maybe 1932 when uh, Elsie Wisdom and Joan Richmond won the BRDC 500 mile race in their Riley that'd just be amazing to see and there were so many women doing amazing things at Brooklands I'd just like to go and say hi to them really. Yes watching some of those older um, races you know I think you know I'm a massive Formula One fan and you know, you you got so used to all these safety devices and all these wings and stuff. I think it'd be quite. Well, I agree with you. I think it'd be quite interesting to go and watch the rawness of some of these races as well. I think that's why um, when I'm I'm reporting on modern motorsport and modern historic motorsport, I do tend to gravitate towards historics and things like little single seaters with with no aero on. I just I just think the racing's better and just more fun. Yeah, and 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 like. You know, like at Monaco the past weekend, the smaller cars have more opportunities to overtake, don't they, as opposed to these behemoths that we have today. So our, our final question here is from Rosie. Um, and it might, you know, I feel, I feel like from your last answer, I might know the, the answer to this one. Where is the best place in the UK to visit if you want to learn more about motorsport history? Well, there's a few different places. Um, Brooklyn's, obviously. Um, I believe you guessed correctly there. They've got a fab museum and there's a bit of a preserved track. They quite often have cars running. Uh, you can just wander around and learn about the different cars and about uh, aviation as well. And it's it's just really atmospheric and and just it's just a fun place to be as well. Um, but it's not the only one. Um, I've not actually been to the Silverstone experience, but Silverstone's got its own museum now, which I've heard really good things about. Um, and then there's the big motor museums that we've got in the UK. There's uh, Bewley down on the south coast, and a smaller is a, a smaller one. Um, it's the British Motor Museum at, at Gaydon, which is quite a nice place to spend an afternoon. Um, or the Transport Museum at Coventry, or you could go to any historic meeting that's running. So um, Goodwood Revival, or if you don't fancy spending that much money, something like masters historic racing and there'll be loads of old cars there and loads of people who like talking about them so you'll learn loads if if you go down that route they are some really really good um museum choices there i think a couple of them are definitely our feature museums for this coming edition of the historians magazine so if you want to learn more about them uh, you can head to read those pieces in the magazine. So, you know, I think, you know, 
I really like some of those choices. And certainly living around Chichester uh, during my university days, I used to love when it was Goodwood Revival because you could you could smell the cars and you can hear yeah. the cars from the city. Going to the Revival since I think 20, 2001 was the first time I went. And it changes a bit, but it's there. there is nothing quite like it. It's more because the track's so open and how it used to be and you can see so much of what happens and it it's something that i think every motorsport fan should do yeah I, I i certainly agree i don't think there's there's much of a match for a for a goodwood weekend to be honest so thank you very much for coming on rachel you know, i've really enjoyed chatting to you about motorsport and women in motorsport and and some of your answers to listener questions now i just want to give you an opportunity now to drop anything that you you want to let our listeners check out and know about so social media any latest work you got coming out um now is your time to let them know about that well um my book speed queens the secret history of women in motorsport is is available it's available at all good uh, places that sell books and um, it's uh, pen and sword books is the publisher and if you buy from them it's it's very good because uh, you'll you'll get better deals and things um my my website is Speed Queens, so it's speedqueens.blogspot.com. Uh, or you can follow me talking rubbish on Twitter, and it's at Rachel Waxing Lear. So R A C H E L W A X I N G L Y R. It was Rachel Waxing Lyrical, but there was a limit on the number of characters then. And my name pops up in, in Autosport. Um, most weeks during the season and I I haven't got any anything coming up in a major newspaper or anything like that but there's there's plans afoot well I'd certainly encourage our listeners to go and check out your work and learn more about motorsport from you um, because you know this this article that you've got coming up in the magazine is really informative and educational about the role of women uh, and the history of women in in motorsport so thank you very much for coming on, Rachel. I've really appreciated it. Thank you, Jackson. It's been it's been really good fun. That's all right. Thank you. And if you guys enjoy the content that we make, be that the podcast or the magazine, consider heading to thehistoriansmagazine.com to become a member of the magazine. Or if you want to listen to this podcast ad-free, that's right, ad-free, you can subscribe to Past and Present Plus to listen to this podcast. So thank you very much for listening, guys, and we will speak to you all in our next episode. 